Good evening, everybody, and Met fans everywhere. Happy summer to you all. My name is Michael Cohen, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you to the 29th episode of a Met Team Podcast. On behalf of my partner, Sam Maxwell, who I don't think will be joining us this evening, I thank you for spending a portion of your weekend with us. Uh, all I can say at this moment is so much for show prep. <laughs> Today's meltdown at Wrigley Field and, and, and the post-game calamity that was, uh, for better or for worse, you know, this team never ceases to amaze. There's a lot to get into. So let's get everyone introduced and jump right in. My other partner in Podcast Madness, please welcome Rich Sparago. Hello, my friend. Hey, Mike. Good evening. And, um, you know, we have a lot to talk about. Um, one could only wish that what we were talking about was, uh, you know, a 10-game winning streak and uh, a head of steam going into the All-Star break. But that's not the case. So uh, we'll talk about the, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. You know, you know what? I, I think <laughs> the, the, the tone of this upcoming podcast took a, a, a wild left turn in the eighth inning. Prior to that, I, I think we would have spoken very differently about happenings in Metsville. Uh, that said, this evening's featured guest is a first ballot inductee in my hall of fans. Uh, he's the proprietor of Faith and Fear and Flushing and author. Uh, sir, I thank you for joining this podcast once again. We appreciate each and every moment you spend talking Mets baseball with us. Hello, Mr. Greg Prince. Hello, Mike and Rich. Uh, yeah, terrific Sunday in Wrigley Field. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what? Let's let's give uh, the post game fireworks some context. Let's talk about the game that was. Uh, Mets split a four game series with the Cubs at Wrigley Field. They end the day thirty seven and forty one, and they are three and four on this road trip. Uh, they did indeed lose in heartbreaking fashion. Or not. It just depends on how numb you are uh, to everything that goes on in Metsville. Uh, so let's talk about happenings prior to the eighth inning. And, Mr. Prince, I will start with you, our resident historian extraordinaire, with Pete Alonzo. He hits number 27 home run number 27th today in the fourth inning against an old nemesis, Cole Hamels. I I thought that was rather apropos. Uh, He breaks Darryl Strawberry's record, and uh, you know the figures. I know I don't have to tell you. Uh, But he's accomplished uh, this rookie record in an astronomically short period of time. That being said, Mr. Prince, take it away. Well, it is... And both an incredible accomplishment, you know, when set against the uh, the great sweep of Mets history, and barring any unforeseen disaster, physical or competitive, it probably won't seem like very much when his rookie season is over. It'll you know, have been you know the first or second, uh, depending on you know how you take your milestones and records uh, to fall under Pete Alonzo's uh, mighty lumber, uh, if we may use uh, to take a moment and, and be uh, overly dramatic about it. Uh, yes, getting it off of Cole Hamels was, was, was a lovely touch. Um, it just, 
I, I remember, you know, various run-ups to Met season records in my life and the sort of the, the breathlessness of the countdown, you know, when, when Todd Hunley got to 41, which broke the record, I guess, of 39 by Daryl Strawberry for most home runs in the season, uh, you know, that, that took us into September when Carlos Beltran tied it. That took us into September when Daryl Strawberry you know, got the rookie home run record himself, which I don't remember being that big a deal, but he was a big deal even uh, from the start. You know, that, that was late August, and that, that's taking into account the fact that it's, he came up in early May. Uh, what, what I guess I'm getting at here is that most season-long milestones take a season long to get there. Pete Alonso got there on June 23rd. It was not surprising. And he got there in, you know, in the context of, of what he's been doing. You know, I remember when I remember, you know, that's a phrase you usually talk about in 1983, not to talk about April. But I remember back in April, you know, they started talking about how, you know, he, he could catch Ron Swoboda for the most, uh, most home runs by a right-handed rookie. And that, that seemed like a pretty good goal, and which is 19, by the way. And, you know, Daryl seemed like an outside shot because, you know, he's a rookie. And, you know, sure, you get, might get lucky for the first couple of weeks of the season, but then they figure you out and, you know, you have your ups and downs. And here we are, not quite three months into the season, and Pete Alonso really hasn't been figured out. He really hasn't had downs, so to speak. Um, he, I, you know, I, I like to follow, at least I started around, I think it was around his 14th home run, you know, once that Daryl's rookie record, you know, seemed to be on the way to being fait accompli. I started tracking what he was doing in terms of the pace set by Hunley and Beltron for the 41. Cause that's to, to me, you know, as, as a Mets fan, you know, that, that is, Val Hallen. I, I don't look for 73 home runs. I don't look for 61 home runs. I look for 41 home runs in, in this, uh, this franchise of ours, which has traditionally been power-starved. And I started keeping an eye on, you know, where Pete hit his 14, 15, 16 home run versus when those two guys did. And I even kept an eye on Dave Kingman's 1976 pace. If you remember, Dave Kingman was off to, to a fantastic start that year, uh, looked to be in line to threaten Hack Wilson's then nationally record at 56. Unfortunately, he decided to field a fly ball and uh, I guess uh, sprained a thumb. And that basically ended you know, his chances to do that. Um, the thing is, when, when I'm looking at those cases, I, I saw that Hunley and Beltran and even Kingman, even though Kingman had an amazing first half, all had droughts. Pete Alonso has not had a drought. Twice, Pete Alonso has gone seven games without a home run, and that's it. The rest of the time, you wait like three days. You know what they say about the weather in Chicago. You wait 10 minutes, the weather changes. You know, you wait three days. Pete Alonso hits a home run. You don't even have to wait that much this weekend because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's hit one after another after another. The, uh, the first two in service to wins, which was fantastic, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he tied the game today, and the Mets appear to be uh, en route. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would have loved, uh, much, much as I'm sure Pete Alonso uh, would have loved uh, when he was asked about it, to uh, be, be able to luxuriate and, and uh, revel in, in this bit of Met history. I mean, I, I 
it probably means more to us as Mets fans when this sort of record falls because, you know, Pete Alonso got here literally three months ago and, you know, probably never heard of most of, most of these records that he's about to set. But um, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's one of those, yeah, it was great, but I, you know, I wanted to help the team win sort of thing. Uh, you know, I, I would hope that, uh, you know, again, I, I think that this, this will be a, a small check mark on the way to bigger things for this season, Knockwood, for him. So, you know, it's great that it happened. It's amazing that it happened this soon. And, you know, even just the, the, the idea of 41 home runs, which, again, back in whenever it was in the middle of May when I started tracking this stuff, seemed like, wow, if he can just keep it up, if he, he doesn't – well, obviously, if he doesn't get hurt. But, you know, if he, if he doesn't have too many slumps, you know, God, maybe, maybe we can finally have somebody hit 42 home runs for the first time and, uh, you know, set a new Met record. Now, you know, I don't want to get greedy. But, uh, you know, the National League record is actually, you know, it's 39 for a rookie. And uh, the Major League record is 52 for a rookie. And I, you know, don't put anything past Alonzo. But, uh, yeah, I, I wish that were the headline story on today's game. Uh, you know, Alonzo sets record in Mets win. Uh, unfortunately, it's a sidebar. I'm glad we could lead with it. But, um, you know, good for Pete. Good, good, good for, for fans who've been watching the Mets not hit home runs for 57 seasons. Uh, they got a guy who seems, uh, you know, uh, in, in the tradition of Strawberry and a few others, uh, seems seems ready to go. And, you know, congratulations, Pete. Rich, the game has changed uh, dramatically for the three of us since we were kids. Uh, just some stats here. Alonzo hits his 27th home run in just the 77th game of the season and his 279th at bat. Official at bat, not plate appearances, official at bat. Daryl Strawberry, he was a rookie at 21, Alonzo's 24. Daryl Strawberry, you know, it took him, uh, I'm trying to look real quick, 400-some-odd 400, 400 official at bats to reach his number. Getting Cycling back to my original point, you know, we, did, we have opinions about home runs these days versus uh, home runs when we were a kid, juice ball, this, that, the other. Uh, how impressed are you? And uh, I think it's a time for celebration. So uh, what say you? Yeah, I, I think that's very true, Mike. Um, it is a time for celebration. And, and I, I point to a couple of things to say that what Pete Alonso has done, he likely is not a beneficiary of a juice ball of watered-down pitching, as, you know, Keith talks about, and with more teams and all of that. Um, you know, the, first of all, let's start with the obvious. The exit velocity on his home runs, that is just insane. You know, he has a couple of the, um, the best exit velocities since StatCast started tracking that in 2015. So he hits the ball very, very hard. He hits prodigious home runs. He hits them, you know, 450 feet. Um, but what I'd really like to point to here is the fact that Pete Alonso, going into today's game, and I believe it, it's he's probably hitting about it was 274 going into the game. I believe he's hitting about 275 after the game. I think he went up a point. Um, so my point is, Pete Alonso's a good hitter. He's not some guy who you know is, is as Gary said during the broadcast. He's not hitting 230 and striking out a ton. And then when he happens with the bat on the ball, you know, he hits a home run. That, that's not the case. Pete Alonso has shown himself 
to be a very, very competent, a very good major league hitter who, oh, by the way, happens to have amazing power. So when I look at that, when I look at the fact that he hits his home runs, he has you know, the most home runs to center field, um, that he hits the ball over the ballpark, he has a two seventy five batting average to back up his home runs, what I'm, what I'm seeing is sustainability. You know, because, like I said, he's not that guy who is all or nothing and benefiting perhaps from watered-down pitching, perhaps from a juice ball. This guy is a very, very good hitter who is insanely strong. And when you think about it, you know, all the things we talked about, he's hitting home runs off of the Cole Hamels of the world. Cole Hamels, second-best ERA in the National League going into the game today. So he's hitting home runs, and he's hitting them from the seventh inning on against people's closers. So he's hitting home runs off of good pitching in addition to everything else I just said. So, you know, Pete Alonzo, and I'll, I'll close with this on Pete, to think that there was some question as to whether or not he would make the team. He has become the reason to watch this team because, quite frankly, what's happening on the field, Greg, you know, maybe we can talk about this later, Mike, I'm not sure that I've seen a, I've seen worse seasons. I'm not sure I've seen a more frustrating season than this one ever. Um, and with all of that that angst that comes from that, Pete Alonso is what put, is what baseball's about. He puts a smile on your face. You watch for love of the game and watch this guy who is doing these things. And then I'll close with this: that he also is a great interview. Whenever he speaks, he's humble. Um, his head is on the right way. He has become the reason to watch this team. Well said, sir. Uh, I'm avoiding the obvious, and I'm going to continue to do so for a little bit. I, I want to continue talking a little bit Mets Cubs. Uh, I want to throw this factoid out there: Mets are below 500 since uh, they were 27 and 27 on May 28. That's 24 games. They've dropped down to fourth place. Now, like I said, they split two games with the Cubs. I want to speak about rivalries for a second because. You know, this Mets Cub series rekindled childhood memories. In the 70s and the 60s, for that matter, the Mets' chief rival was the Cubs. In the 80s, I guess you can say it was the Cardinals. Uh, but in 84, you know, we had that confrontation with the Cubs nonetheless. In the, in the 90s, 2000, it was the Atlanta Braves. Late 2000, Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, you know, we all grew up in an era when the National League East, you know, Greg, you can even speak before that when the division was even larger. Uh, but the National League East was comprised of the Mets, Cubs, Cardinals, Pirates, Phillies, and Expos. You know, and as a child, I came to learn that the Cubs were our chief rival. They've changed over the years. So I guess my question right now is as we head into this four-game series against the Phillies, having just completed this four games against the Cubs, who is our chief rival? And does it compare with what you felt as a child? Greg? Uh, I don't think we have a chief rival other than ourselves. Uh, what is the, uh, what, what the, the comic strip Pogo, if you remember that, uh, the, the famous line, we have met the enemy and they is us. But uh, putting aside that sad reality, um, you know, I, I think the most recent arch rival we had was the Nationals. And I don't think that was really much of a rivalry. We kind of were ships that passed in the night a couple of times uh, down the stretch in 2015 for the better and then going in the other direction for the worse. And, you know, you, you saw, you know, some, some fumes 
uh, arise uh, when the Mets played the Phillies earlier this season. If you remember the whole bit with Jacob Rame and Reese Hoskins, and maybe that uh, sparked something. Although right now, you know, as we go into this week, both teams have worse things to worry about than each other. They have just themselves because the Phillies are, are also having a bad weekend. Um, and the Braves, you know, the, I think the Mets and Braves have been out of each other's orbit for so long. Uh, I, I think the, for the fans to feel it, the players have to feel it, the standings have to reflect it. So with the Mets having been, you know, sub-mediocre for two and a half years, it's hard to get worked up about anybody in particular. Uh, you know, the Cubs, the historic nature of that rivalry, rekindled maybe a little bit in our minds in the fall of 2015 during the NLCS. Uh, I, I really enjoyed throughout this trip to Wrigley Field. Uh, every time a note would be read on the air about the Mets' recent troubles at Wrigley Field where they had not played very well for, for a while, it always had to be pointed out, but that doesn't include the 2015 postseason when the Mets swept the NLCS from the Cubs. And that was just nice to be reminded of that. It's hard to believe that was less than four years ago. Uh, you know, certainly when you're a kid and, you know, you, you, everything is kind of new to you to begin with. So it's bigger than it probably is because you don't have much of a frame of reference. Uh, you know, rivalries are, you know, building blocks of your fandom. Certainly, you know, where, where I came in as a fan 50 years ago, was the Mets chasing down the Cubs. And as I probably said on this show before, you know, I, my, my indoctrination of 1969 was a, a series of back page cartoons in the New York post of, uh, you know, this lovable bird that represented the Mets taking on this, you know, ornery bear representing the Cubs. And I was just so delighted when the, when the bird bested the bear, you know, in September and then went on to, to beat other rivals uh, in October. So, uh, you know, the, the Cubs, it's funny, with the, whereas the Mets and Phillies were never good at the same time, which kind of kept that from being kind of a natural rivalry despite the geography, the Mets and Cubs for years just kind of, you know, hung together in the standings, including, you know, the late 70s and early 80s when both teams were awful at the same time. And the excitement was, you know, trying to catch the Cubs for fifth place, which, you know, is just not that much fun to <laughs> to live with. But that's really what it was all about. And then, you know, as, as you mentioned, 84 kind of, you know, ignited the whole thing for uh, for another generation, you know, eclipsed by the whole thing with the Cardinals and then later the Pirates. And, then, you know, as, as uh, you indicated, um, you know, the, the divisions are different now. So you lost arguably the three fiercest rivalries you had in the Pirates and the Cardinals and the Cubs. And for a long time, I still kind of felt it in my bones when they would play these teams. I guess I still feel a little bit for the Cardinals, only because we played them now twice in the postseason this century. And the last time, it was in 2006, still bitter. But it's, it's hard to get, like, too excited about it when you play them, you know, once, a, depending on the schedule. But I remember last year, they played them the first series at home, and then they went to St. Louis in late May, and that was it. And I guess they're done with the Cardinals now. So if you're, you know you're not going to see them in September, it's a little different. Uh, you know, the Cubs kept popping up until, in, in our lives, 89, 98 uh, for the wild card, and, uh, you know, that, that didn't work out too well. 
they sort of got in her way in 2008 as we were trying to clinch a wild card that never happened in the last week of the season. So I, I think, to be honest, 2015, you know, the, the, the thrill of winning that pennant, uh, finally kind of took the uh, ironically as opposed to me wanting like stick it, stick it to the nearest Cubs fan I could find even if I had to get on a plane and go to Chicago um, kind of took the edge off for me it's like okay we won the pennant didn't really matter who we played and then by the next season when they went on and won the World Series I, it took me a while but I was like you know what good for them so um, it, would, it would be nice to, if only from a reliability standpoint to have like a you know, a blood rival uh, who you just, you know, you're, you're a, a part of your whole life as a fan is about them losing as much as it is you winning. But really, you know, it, for us, I think it's just situational. If, if we happen, if we somehow find ourselves in a duel with the Braves, the Braves will be our fiercest rival. If somehow we get into a wild card race where it's us or the San Diego Padres for that second wild card slot, then I'm going to hate the Padres with all my heart, which is not a phrase I'm used to using. So, um, you know, the, the, the real fun, honestly, would be the Mets kind of being in that position where everybody wants to beat them, and therefore their fans are saying, boy, the Mets are our biggest rivals, and why do they always have to stick it to us? But I think we're a little far away from that at the moment. Yeah, in order to be considered, I think uh, you need great competition. So let's say you're rich. Wow. Um, you know, the Mets have had periodic rivals over the years. You guys hit it. You know, it went from the Cubs to Cardinals to the Braves and then to the to the Phillies and the Nationals. And, I, you know, I think what that shows is that there is, the New York Mets franchise doesn't have one dyed-in-the-wool rival. You know, just like if you look across town, everybody knows who the Yankees' rival is, right? So – and, and it's like that even no matter what the teams are doing. But but in this case, you know, the, the Mets have kind of bopped around from rival to rival. And I think it, it, a lot of it's because the Mets have not been consistently good. You know, le, like Greg just said, you you develop rivalries when you're the team that's the scourge of another team, and, and that team scourges you back. And the Mets just haven't been consistently good enough to earn that moniker, you know, of, of some team scourge. It, it just hasn't happened. Um, like, you know, just look at recent recent history. Yeah, sure, they battled the Nationals in 15 and 16. Um, you know, 16 Mets got the wild card, but in, in 15 for the division. But I wouldn't call that some heated rivalry. It was a couple of years. And really, 15 was the only year that it was for the actual division. Uh, the Phillies thing, yeah, you know, that was that was 07, 08. Um, okay, so it was a couple of years where it, it did come down to the wire. But, but you haven't heard much about the Phillies since. So, um, I don't know. I take this as a bad thing. I really do. The fact that the Mets haven't been consistently good enough to be ingrained in another team's fiber so much that that team wants to beat the Mets and vice versa, it, to me, it's probably more of a comment on this franchise, this franchise's inability to sustain winning. And, and I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I definitely think something's lacking there. Uh, there's, there's a certain excitement to when you have that chief rival. You know, you go to their town and they come to your town. It's a lot of fun. All right, guys, it's time to uh, finally jump into the volcano. I'll bring you up to the rim. Uh, DeGrom pitches six innings today. He's about 97 pitches, allows two on runs on eight hits, strikes out nine, allows no walks. 
I saw a graphic on S and Y. Uh, in his last three starts, he's allowed no walks and has spanned 27. Rather impressive. His ERA presently stands at 3.25. So I don't think there's any concerns there. There was speculation that uh, he might have felt something in his arm because of his mannerisms on the mound, but everything checked out per Mickey Calloway. All right, guys, let's jump in. The eighth inning. And, Rich, I'm going to start with you because the fact that Seth Lugo was facing Anthony Rizzo, I was already irate, much less what happened. Uh, and I'm looking to blame somebody, be it BBW or Mickey, Callow- Mickey Calloway. Uh, you know, Seth Lugo is the only reliever in the Mets bullpen with an ERA below three. I repeat, the only reliever with an ERA below, excuse me, below two or three. You guys correct me. I'm too frustrated to look at it right now. The bullpen has been through, uh, or has it seeded 20 pitchers already? I think they're on number 21. There was clearly no one available to relieve Lugo. So, Rich, go ahead. Let's all join hands and let's jump into the volcano, pick it up in the eighth inning. All right, so it's it's the only uh, reliever under three. Lugo's ERA currently stands at two eight seven. So there you go. You know, I'm not going to point this at Mickey Callaway the eighth inning because sure it's shared blame. I mean, he he bears some of the blame, but think about it, right? He's got Lugo is their best reliever. He is. He's more effective than Diaz. We all know the statistics. You know, he had a. a He'd given up one run since, I don't know, the last how many ever innings they said it during the game. The fact is he's been their most effective reliever. So you want him to pitch the seventh and the eighth for you and then go to Diaz for the ninth. Okay. So where I give blame to BVW is the fact that, A, there's not a lefty in the bullpen, which is unfathomable to me, I say emphatically, that you don't have a lefty in your bullpen. How in the hell do you run a major league ball club without a lefty in your bullpen for this exact situation? I mean, are you thinking that there are no good left-handed hitters left in baseball? Is that the reason? Because we certainly know that isn't. So the poor construction means you're automatically behind the eight ball. You have to have a righty facing Rizzo. So the question becomes, who's that righty? Okay. So Lugo, yes, he clearly something – he wasn't Lugo. He escaped the seventh inning. Okay. So now what are your choices? Your choices are to go to your only other person who is semi-reliable in the bullpen, and that's Gesellman. So play this one out. They take Lugo out for Gesellman, who has not been good, and Baez does what he did. Does what he did. I guarantee you two-thirds of the people who are screaming, why did you leave Lugo in, are, t- are saying, why would you take him out? Although he was struggling, he knows how to pitch, you know, he, he's, he's your best arm, all these kinds of things. All right, that, that's option one. Option two is you could go to Diaz, theoretically, for a five-out save. Yes, in, in the context of today's game, you could have. But we all know that is not a long-term strategy. You cannot use your closer for five outs on a regular basis. They could have done it today, absolutely. But... The problem is the lack of reliable options. The answer isn't throw Diaz out there for five outs all the time because 
he'll fall apart, and we all know that. So there isn't a there's no lefty, there's no good option behind Lugo. Diaz could have been a band aid solution for today, and you have to recognize that if they did do that, they'd lose him for probably the next two days. Okay, but I wanted to win today too. So as as I'm as far as I'm concerned, there's plenty of blame to go around. And and I but I can't point at Mickey and say you did the wrong thing because you could poke holes in any of the things he could have done, Gaselman or Diaz, and those were his only other options. And, and uh, you know, and again, I'll I'll leave it at this. How in the hell do you not have a lefty in your bullpen? I, I, especially when the righties you have out there aren't aren't great shakes anyway. So get rid of one of those guys and and. Bring a lefty in for that exact situation. My rant's over. There you go. Uh, and Sam Maxwell included, because this is uh, what he wanted to jump in uh, specifically. Uh, Greg, uh, again, I'm looking for blame. I put blame on BBW. Uh, less blame on Callaway. What I want to add before you get into it, I want to add a few comments. Mickey retracts on Edwin Diaz and five-out saves. Uh, I think this is, what, maybe a month, month and a half ago, he says that would be, they would be open to that, uh, and he backtracked on that. Mickey Callaway said, amongst other things today, we have a very good plan. <laughs> I figure I'd just throw that in there. But one of the more odd things that he said was that Lugo was ready to throw 50 pitches quote-unquote. Lugo was up to pitch 42 when he surrendered the home run. So before we get into that press conference Krakatoa, let's just stick with Mickey Callaway's decisions, your impressions of the eighth inning, and how everything transpired. And like I said, I'm looking for blame. So what say you? Well, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, It is Mickey Calloway was not given a well-constructed bullpen, and he has not made much of what he was given. And, you know, the the offseason did include left-handers, Justin Wilson, Luis Avalon. Uh, We have seen Daniel Zamora. We saw Hector Santiago. I'm probably missing somebody along the way. Um, None of them are here right now, whether – they're injured or they've been released or they were sent down. None of them were particularly effective. It is 78 games into the championship season and they have not made sure that they have some kind of option where that's concerned. And that's on Van Wagenen or whoever calls the shots in the organization. It's hard to keep track. Uh, Keeping Lugo out there, since I, I assume that um, Callaway do- doesn't get phone calls during the game, that's on him. And, you know, it, it was clear to all concerned that Lugo did not have it in the eighth inning. You can't expect the one guy you lean on to have it every time out. I, th- I think the situation where, you know, the hypothetical situation that, that Rich threw out there, which was, you know, why did you take him out you know, in, this, in, the, in an alternate universe where you're taking out, he's your most consistent reliever. And Al, yeah, I, I imagine somebody could have said that, but you know, you, sooner or later when you just keep going to the well, 
for the guy who, you know, has given you a lot of good innings. But, you know, you can recognize when the guy is, if not exactly overworked, but just, you know, it's the wrong day to push him. And today was the wrong day to push him and to not have a backup plan. I mean, again, Mickey Calloway's phrase, something about we have a really good plan. Well, we didn't see it in action. And, you know, the dancing around on whether Diaz is, is okay to get four outs but not five outs and how many pitches we were, we our plan you know, had Lugo pitching, you know, it's, it's absurd. You, you have to go with the game that's in front of you, which is something Callaway is terrible at. If, if that's his one, the one thing that, you know, whether it's Van Wagenen or Jeff Wilpon or the analytics team, you know, telling him what to do, you know, this, this is his moment, you know, in, in accordance with whoever the, you know, the 10 or 11 coaches who are on staff, all the quality control coaches and, and pitching strategists and all these other new age titles. And, you know, it's just, shoot, I'll just leave Lugo out there. Lugo's my best guy. Just, and I, I, you know, somebody told me not to use Diaz too much. Diaz who's barely thrown. Um, well, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. He had nothing else to do on Sunday. He was, he was in a uniform. He had, a, he had, a, he had his glove with him. He could have played. Uh, you know, I, I understand that these guys are finely tuned uh, and, you know, there are routines to be followed that, that the whole thing is a little, you know, it's hard to calibrate. I, I appreciate that. But it was just wrong to, to leave Lugo out there. The last guy I blame here is Lugo. Lugo's done the job and, you know, he's, he's entitled to, to have a bad outing. Uh, Callaway is not entitled to just leave him out there. So it's, I don't know, you don't really have, you know, if you don't bring Diaz in, you're, you're bringing Gazelman in, like I said. And Gazelman, I don't have that much confidence in with runners on base. I would have just taken my chances with Diaz. Even if you know what, I, I, I may be in, in that parallel universe where Diaz comes in the eighth and gets out of it. And let's just say, for argument's sake, they say, you know what, we're, we're, we're sending in Brooks Pounders or we're sending in Stephen Nogasek to get us out of this or whoever else is out of that bullpen. Because I, I, honestly, sometimes I lose track. Um, and something went to hell there. Maybe I'd be screaming, but get the eighth inning taken care of. We, we've seen in postseasons over the last two or three years, including with Mickey Calloway as the pitching coach in Cleveland, where they, they don't mess around with the batter that needs to be retired at a given moment, that the inning that needs to be ended at a given moment, because the ninth inning, you know, you, you can't send reservations for the ninth inning. You have to get there with a lead. Um, and so if, if they haven't prepared Diaz to be a little more flexible, that's on them. And if they don't have, you know, meet on them, meaning, you know, Callaway, his staff, whoever, and if they don't have a better option, that's that's on Van Wagenen, and that's on Jeff Wilpon or whoever is telling Van Wagenen, you know, no, no, you can't go out and get a reliever. No, you, you, back, back when this was an option, no, you can't sign Craig Kimbrell. I loved how right after both uh, Keifel and Kimbrell, and I, I don't want to go on a tangent about this, you know, were signed by the teams that signed them. We, we read, you know, uh, sources say that, the, the, you know, the Mets were, you know, serious about them. For No, they weren't. They were serious. They, they would have just made them an offer. They'd be in. At least one of them, well, preferably Kimbrell, uh, would have been in a Mets uniform right now or, you know, would be on his way to being in a Mets uniform and would be in St. Lucie getting loose or, you know, where, wherever they would have him 
you know, shaking off the rust and, and preparing for, for the rest of the season. Um, but they just are content to kind of shuffle guys in and out. You might get a, a good a good looking inning now and then from somebody like Chris Flexen and or Drew Gagno, and then suddenly you're all excited. Oh, this this is our answer. And then Drew Gagno implodes. Hector Santiago implodes. Uh, you know, give Chris Flexen time, and uh, he will. But uh, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to put the Nahara on the kid, as they say in Yiddish. But uh, you know, I, I'm not holding my breath. So. You, you can't go into these games. You know, you, you've seen how they've tried to push the starters, and we all, you know, we all fancy ourselves old school fans. We love starters going at least seven innings, but we also see that this is not what they've been conditioned for. So it's no wonder that you can only sometimes get six innings out of Degrom, who gave you a really good outing, callous on his foot notwithstanding, which was the thing uh, apparently giving him trouble. So you know, you you got to be prepared behind this. And, you know, they're not. And you know, sooner or later against a good team, it's going to come back to bite you. Even against a bad team sometimes, it's going to come back to bite you. But it's, you know, sort of unforgiving when you play a first-place team or a team that is, you know, a cut above. And the Cubs are a cut above. Uh, it, it, it pains my six-year-old inner self to admit that, having talked about rivalries. But, yeah, the Cubs are a better team. The Braves are a better team. Every time they played a better team this year, especially on the road, uh, you know, they can't get away with what they get away with at home against the Giants or the Tigers for the most part, or, you know, whoever they've beaten. So, uh, you know, they're playing down to their level overall. And, you know, they're certainly capable of, of having a good game or two. But, you know, without depth, and, you know, they, they patted themselves a lot on the back about depth when it came to that week where Carlos Gomez and Rajay Davis and – Aaron Altair, we're all hitting home runs, and isn't it great that we can, you know, rely on these guys as opposed to having to, to go out and lean on Austin Jackson and who, who, uh, Nori Aoki and the people who've kind of come and gone over the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, the, the, the depth story ended with the pitching staff, especially with the bullpen. So you, you, you want blame, Mike. Uh, you know, blame, blame, the, blame A, the guys who put together the bullpen, and B, the guy who calls the shots during the game. It's a curious matter. I want to take a quick second go around at this one, uh, only because I want to bring up that the Mets bullpen has blown 50% of their saves. 21 pitchers have been in and out. They can only shuffle so many bodies back and forth from Syracuse. So, Rich, I, I ask you this. Uh, BBW, I mean, if you're playing and, and here comes the trade deadline and you're not looking around the landscape, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot by throwing out names and teams, but, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, uh, a, a Shane Green in Detroit or, uh, I don't know, a, a Brad Hand from Cleveland or Will Smith from San Francisco, teams that aren't in the mix, teams that are going nowhere. Is there anything? Because, look, in order to improve this situation, and we're only, what, four games under 500. So I'm asking for the pragmatic view here. What can he possibly do? He has to add, doesn't he? Well, you know, I, I think the next month between now and the trade deadline will answer that question. You know, they they could tread water and be somewhere between 500 and 4 under, in which case, yeah, I mean, adding makes sense. Um, or, 
you know, there's the other side of the coin where they could be 11 under by the trade deadline, in which case adding doesn't. But the one thing that I'll, that I'll say is this. The Mets struggles, unlike in past years, the Mets struggles are very, very easy to, to point out. The bullpen has cost this team so much. You know, you, you just said it, Mike, the 16 blown saves. If they convert eight of those saves, they're a game, I think they're two games out of first place. And that's half. That's not a big percentage. That's half. So my point is that it's not like you're – sure, they're lacking in other places, but, but the glaring need is in one place. And if you could address that one place where we all know what the need is, Maybe it does make some sense to add because it's not a situation where, well, you know, we need two starters, we need three bullpen pieces, and a center fielder. Well, while upgrades in a couple of places certainly would make sense, if they could get somebody to lock down the eighth inning, use Lugo in the seventh or vice versa, somebody to lock down the seventh, use Lugo in the eighth, Gaselman becomes, you know, more of a, of a middle inning guy, long reliever kind of a thing because of his starting history. This team could really, really be in a different situation. You know, they're scoring runs. The offense isn't a problem. Um, they, I find center field to be an incredible black hole, but okay. If they want to try to tread water with Ligaris and Gomez, okay. Uh, or Conforto, whatever they decide to do. I know there's another topic we're going to talk about later with another potential. But it's like the, the need is right in front of you, Brody. It's right in front of you. You don't have to go looking for it. It's not necessarily multiple needs. If you plug one hole, that might be the difference between really contending or this, you know, one step up, two, one step up, two steps back thing. That's why I know we've talked about this, and I don't want to go on this rabbit hole either, but Kimbrell would have been perfect. He would have enabled Lugo to, to settle into a role, Kimbrell into the other. Diaz is your closer. Think about how different things could be. Well, that's the decision they're going to have to make, which, like I said, will be driven by the goings-on over the next month. But, um, it, you know, it, it's a situation where you fix that one thing and your fate might be quite a bit different. Uh, the 21 members of the bullpen have combined on an ERA above seven. Uh, Rich, you bring up deficiencies. I'll bring up the other major deficiency. Uh, Greg, you know, ponder that bullpen – scenario that I brought up, but here's here's their fielding stats. They're, <laughs> they've handled the least number of chances yet have committed the most errors. Ponderous. That said, they're last in fielding average and they're second to last in defensive efficiency rate, ratio. And teams are running wild against the Mets. Wilson Ramos uh, is throwing out uh, runners at a 13% clip. That's horrendous, and the league average, I believe, is 27%. Uh, seven pass balls, his career high is 10. Here we are in June, so, you know, you do the math and average that out. Uh, catcher, first base, shortstop, third base, account for 60% of all net errors. You know who they are. Uh, all that being said, Greg, I'll throw it back to you, and then we'll deal with the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, fielding is not a strength of this team. Uh, you know, the, the sad part is that 
the best defensive player you have is Juan Lagares, who is most days buried on the bench because, except against Cole Hamilton, he doesn't hit. And, you know, it's, it's, I was, I was actually th- thinking about it the other day, how, you know, there was a, a boomlet in 2013 when Juan Lagares first showed his, his face and uh, his glove more, more to the point and hit enough. And the, the, everything was, Hey, Hey, Terry, why don't you play Juan Lagares? And Juan Lagares was the people's choice. And now, just kind of you know showing the passage of time. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, and now it's you know a lineup is posted with Juan Lagares in it, and uh, you know people uh, lose their minds uh, because he's batting you know, whatever it is 182. I don't know. I don't know uh, his, his average offhand, um, and that's your best defensive player, and he doesn't play that often, and it's a team that go, who's you know, philosophy is makeshift on any given day. Oh, yeah, we, you know, we want to be more athletic. We want to, you know, put put people in a position to succeed. And then it's like, well, you know, where can we stick, you know, our other first baseman, stick him in left field? What about the third baseman we can't play every day because we already have another third baseman? Well, stick him in left field. What about our, you know, guy who, you know, showed he was okay at second base? Well, we'll stick him in left field. <laughs> because uh, they, they have not really thought this through. Um, and that's in addition to the most, you know, for the, the positions you mentioned. Catcher, indeed, has been a defensive black hole. Shortstop has been disappointing, uh, to put it mildly. You know, the first baseman is doing a nice job, and, you know, he was supposed to be the quote-unquote butcher of flushing, and he, he's been fine. Um, you know, your, your veteran second baseman, you know, has lost range, and then probably interest for what that's worth. And, you know, one of, one of your two starting outfielders who you were depending on to be kind of an all-around guy is out for who knows how long, and that's putting aside, you know, your superstar outfielder who we've completely forgotten about uh, because he hasn't played uh, for about a year and a half practically. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a team that, that you would think has enough talent even with certain guys sidelined and certain guys kind of, kind of groping yeah, you take a put aside the the National League East. Look at the wild card. The Mets, I think, it's like four or five games out. I mean, the problem is everybody is four or five games out. Um, you know, on some level, you could say, well, you know what? All it would take is like a couple of really good weeks, and you're, you've moved up. But then, you know, the the thing about that is, and I've, 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 for for some reason, I've, I've I spent a lot of time studying daily. The Mets' daily record day after day throughout their history for the last couple of years has been kind of an obsession of mine. And uh, one of the things I, I've noticed is that when you're a lousy team in the first half, chances are you're a lousy team in the second half. You might pick it up a little bit. You you might kind of, you know, f- find your footing. You know, young players might come of age a little bit and then might give you some hope for next year. But other than, you know, literally two examples in Met history, uh, 1973, which we all cherish and revere for, for what it represents, and 2001, which could have been, could have been that story all over again, uh, but for a couple of – tell me if this sounds familiar – a couple of bad bullpen outings in September. Um, you know, that, that could have also made, made more history than just been an asterisk. Everything else – when you have a team like this, and I, I've, I've certainly lived it enough, where you say, you know what, if we could just get hot, we're really not that bad. We've certainly got the personnel. Uh, it never happens. 
Now, that being said, understanding that precedence is not destiny, that, you know, what happened in, I don't know, 1992 or 2009 has nothing to do with what, what might happen in 2019. You know, do you say, well, we got to you know, remake this thing on the fly and compete? I mean, it depends on, on what you can do, who you can get, what you would have to give up, what obligations you are stuck with under this general manager, and, and for that matter, the one before, I suppose. You know, I, I come back to something, a, a question Rich posed in the off season, which was, and I don't remember if he said 41 and 40 or 40 and 41, but you know, his question was if the Mets are 41 and 40 slash 40 and 41, does Mickey Calloway you know, survive? And at the time, I, I think the, the premise was that, gee, that would be kind of a, kind of a disappointing record for a team that was, you know, setting itself up to be a real contender. And, you know, of course, the general manager, you know, met with, with those, uh, those immortal words, come get us, which is the Art Howe will light up a room of, of the 2010s, I fear. And, um, you know, 41-40 is now out of the question. They're 37 and 41. So they're, they're, even if they, you know, extend the Phillies losing streak this week, um, you know, they're no, they're no better than a 500 team after 82 games. And that doesn't even seem likely. So, you know, put all together. I, I want to believe that the, the season, you know, can be salvaged, that we're not just getting to July and saying things like, well, what kind of trades can we make for the future? And, why, why won't they play the kids? I swear to God, one of the things I, I hate talking about as a fan is playing the kids. Nothing against the kids. I love the fact that we played a kid at first base to start the season and didn't send him to Syracuse. And we, we found, you know, we didn't trade one of the kids to Seattle. Not that we didn't trade two of them. We didn't trade Jeff McNeil when they talked about doing that. And he got his at-bats. He earned them. Alonzo earned his at-bats. I'm all, I'm all for it in the, you know, this is our, our best player. Let's not hold him back. But, you know, when you get to that trade deadline period and then you're like, well, it's a lost cause, so why are they playing Todd Frazier when they could be playing whoever? That that sort of thing. It just depresses the hell out of me every year. And, you know, that, that's where we seem to be headed. Um, again, and ironically, in a year where actually, you know, seeing J.D. Davis and Dom Smith in the lineup more often than not would be a good thing. So I don't want to give up. Um, but you know, when you're, I don't know what the hell they are now, like eighth, <laughs> eighth out of uh, 12 teams uh, for the wild card, something like that. I think they're in a statistical tie with Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, barely holding off Washington and even San Francisco really with only my, only Miami and probably the giants. like don't have any kind of even a, a hypothetical shot at the wild card, but the Mets have been in that position too. I remember 10 years ago, the first year of city field when, Everything was falling apart, but the Mets made this, like, tiny little run after the All-Star break. And, like, well, you know what? They're only six and a half out of the wild card, something like that. But, yeah, but they're behind seven teams. And, and, and you look for, like, any any entryway, uh, you know, to relevancy that you can find. Uh, gosh, 2017, two years ago. They were a terrible team, but they, they, they got to, like, four games under 500, and it was conceivable, you know. They had just come off two postseasons in a row. Well, you know, maybe if they do this or that, but it was, you know, they, they, they gave up the ghost that year. And, you know, and what, what did they do? They traded for, like, 14 young relievers, none of whom, none of whom have had any impact except negative since then. So, um, you know. I don't know what, what to make of it, uh, you know. 
other than I, I think a, you know, you, you don't want the season to go away, you know, because you spend all of winter just counting down to all the milestones of uh, pitchers and catchers and first spring training game and ultimately opening day. But you almost feel like this, this team would be better off with a reset that you just kind of start over in another season, uh, you know, accentuate the, uh, accentuate the positive assets you have and hopefully, uh, you know, tell everybody to take fielding drills more seriously and, you know, never mind getting better talent. So, uh, it's kind of a round and round situation at this point, Mike. And uh, unlike today, where I'm happy, I'm happy to blame a couple of <laughs> a couple of guys uh, for what went wrong. I don't really have any answers, um, other than you know, play play better and get and get better players, I guess. Yeah, well, the next series of events is going to dictate much of that. All right, gentlemen, uh, you're listening to a Mexican podcast with author Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Mickey Callaway had uh, not one but two incidences in the post-game press conference with the media, uh, a blow-up of sorts. Uh, I'm going to reference two tweets. I'm sure you guys did your homework, and I think we're all going to educate each other on this because, you know, I don't have the full story. Uh, It was still developing. So uh, here we go. I think it was uh, Matt Eholt of Yahoo!, who's on the beat for Yahoo, and uh, Mickey asked to have him excused from the room. And from what I understand, Mickey also cursed out Tim Healy of Newsday, whom we've had on a Metsian podcast very recently. Now I'm going to read one tweet from Mike Puma. Callaway told, quote from Mike Puma, Callaway told the public relations staff to get this mother effer out of the clubhouse. And when Healy didn't leave, Vargas got into a stare down with him. Words were exchanged, and Vargas had to be restrained from him. Here's a second tweet that I'll reference from Disha Thosar of the New York Daily News. Mickey Calloway told the reporter to leave the clubhouse, calling the reporter a mother effer multiple times. Uh, Mickey Calloway is quoted as saying, Don't be a smartass, mother effer. Jason Vargas, defending his manager, said, I'll knock you the F out, bro. Okay. I'm sure you guys have other takes on this. Uh, I will only add for the moment, uh, this is an aspect of Mickey Calloway's personality. I feel he's been trying his damnedest to suppress uh, through some bad times managing this team. I always thought he had this in him. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Mr. Prince, I will take this. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, I'm flustered. Go ahead. Well, uh, if you want to give Mickey Calloway and for that matter Jason Vargas and anybody else in there the benefit of the doubt, it's a long season. It was a tough game. It's a long road trip. Uh, close quarters in the Wrigley Field clubhouse. Uh, you get tired of answering the same questions over and over again. You're you're in a competitive business. You might be forgiven for, for getting riled up. Uh, so that is the benefit of the doubt. Uh, that that said, I think that the manager of a major league baseball team, I was going to say the manager in New York, doesn't really matter where it is. But, uh, you know, in, in a media market like this, but again, anywhere, it's, it's a major league. It's, it's, it's a professional setting. 
you have to be professional about this. You have to conduct yourself professionally, and you have to be able to let it roll off your back, whatever whatever it is. And from what I understand, have, having you know read as much as I could about this, uh, Tim Healy, who again I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, he seems seem like a fairly mild mannered, uh, non troublemaking type. Um, said, you know, see you tomorrow, Mickey. All I can think is that see you tomorrow for a guy whose job status is day to day might be some sort of a uh, a red, you know, a, a red cape at a bull or something. Or maybe it was just like the last thing he needed to hear. I don't know. But it sounds again, we're not in there. Sounds innocent enough. Uh, Callaway may just have, you know, be at the end of his rope uh, in more ways than one. I think it is telling that uh, since we have uh, gone on the air, the Mets have issued a statement uh, which reads, the Mets sincerely regret the incident that took place with one of our beat writers following today's game in the clubhouse. We do not condone this type of behavior from any employee. The organization has reached out and apologized to this reporter and will have have further discussions internally with all involved parties. So, you know, this is damage control, uh, which I think is the least they can do. Uh, You know, you can't be attacking the press. Uh, It may work for certain elected officials uh, who believe they are beyond uh, reproach, but that is a whole other ball game, no pun intended. Uh, You know what? I, I, like you guys, I, I keep tabs on, on, on the beat writers and on what they, they produce, what they say on social media. You know, everybody's a little snarky, I suppose. They, they follow a team that has not been good. And to their credit, they, you know, they, kind of, they have to play it fairly straight. But, you know, it gets out that they, that they know that they are not following, you know, the uh, – I, I wanted to use – I was going to say they're not following the 27 Yankees. Uh, but I don't want to use them as an example. I'm not following the big red machine here. Let's put it that way. But that, that also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you're following, uh, you know, who, who you're covering. You still have to you know, be professional on their end. As far as I know, uh, every, everybody is, is a professional who covers the team. Uh, Tim Healy doesn't deserve this. Jason Vargas, uh, you know, other than maybe Jason Vargas has, has some built-up resentments toward the reporters who have, you know, did the, uh, you know, did him a uh, disservice apparently by reporting on his first season as a Met accurately, but, or maybe you know he just was sticking up for his manager. I don't know. Uh, it's always bad. I mean, some some teams, you know, if we're going to look at it as, as fans, uh, in in that fanish way, fans have, um, you know, good teams have this sort of thing happen. We all grew up with memories of of the '74 A's that that era where they attacked each other and anybody who got in their way. You know, we know the stories of Billy Martin and Lou Pinella and, and guys like that. And, and, you know, this this is sort of, in a way, this is sort of a tradition in, in baseball. People lose their tempers, and maybe, maybe you wouldn't have heard about it as quickly, let alone as widely as you do now. But, you know, you, you don't like to hear it. I don't like to hear it as some, somebody who's worked as a journalist. Um you know, everybody should have respect for one another. It does not reflect well on Callaway. This is not something a championship manager does. This is not an org. You know, the, the, I'm glad that the organization, even if it was just sort of a damage control, somewhat bland statement, 
you know, did the right thing in responding to this rather than A, saying nothing, or B, you know, kind of, you know, doubling down. Uh, just as a quick sidebar here, um, and there's, there's something about the, the, the whole way the Mets organization conducts itself. It, it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it up except that it, it just strikes me as, as, I don't know if ironic is the word, but, uh, you know, in, in, in coincidental to uh, this happening during the game, you know, the, uh, the, the Mets before the game, you know, tweeted out the lineup, which is, you know, we touched on. It wasn't much of a lineup today because they uh, benched their uh, their better left-handed hitters. And um, fortunately, you know, Lagares had a, had a good bat early. Anito hit a home run. DeGrom, who, who was going to bat anyway, uh, got a big hit. And the Mets' official Twitter account basically trolled Mets fans by saying, hey, Hey, for everybody who had that comment this morning about our lineup, here's some highlights. And this is like in the fifth inning. And it's like, A, like, wait till the game is over to take a victory lap <laughs> to show us Thomas Tomas Nito's home run and, and Jacob DeGrom's RBI. Never mind the fact that nobody has a problem with Jacob DeGrom taking it back. He's the pitcher. We understand that. And B, well, what's the deal? They, they've done this more than once. You know, what, what, what is the deal of trolling your fans and saying, you know, I understand. Fans can be jerks on Twitter because you, you don't really understand that there's another person on the other end who's operating these accounts and that, you know, there's a whole psychology there and it's, it's not pleasant. We all know that. But you know, be bigger than that. Be professional. And I suppose it's considered adorable or uh, edgy or something, but it's just terrible. And they, they've done this more than once recently. And these are, you know, these are your customers. These are the people who, who willingly wear your colors. And, and, yes, in good times, it's fantastic. But in less good times, it, it's a drag. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not burning any of my Met merchandise, believe me. But, you know, you, you, you end up answering for your team out there on the streets. And you know, so, you know, be be respectful of the people who, who carry the torch for you. Be respectful of the people who are there you know, to give your product free advertising because you know, Tim Healy and Maddie Holt and all the rest of them aren't there because it's a fun thing to do. You know, they, they chose their profession, and that's great, but they're, in the, they're there you know, night after night, day after day, very few days off. I don't think you know, any of them are there to make anybody's life miserable. But, you know, when you have a lousy game like the Mets did today that hinged on a questionable managerial decision for which the manager is, as usual, inarticulate in explaining his reasoning, then you're going to have to answer it. You're going to have to, I hate this expression, but you're going to have to man up. I'm sure Callaway has used that expression. And, uh, you know, be, be professionals. It's that simple. But this wouldn't fly. In other businesses, it wouldn't fly, you know, white collar, blue collar, I don't care. You know, if you don't threaten somebody who's, you know, part of your part of your workplace setting. So um, just a bad look all around. And, you know, again, that's putting aside the ethics and morals and all of that stuff. You know, it's fa- you know, it's fans, we say, like, okay, well, I'm not going to go as far as to say, well, I, I certainly hope this brings the Mets together. But hopefully it's just something that everybody shakes hands and uh, moves on from it, and, you know, the Mets can go back to baseball, and, you know, Healy and Ehalt and the rest of them can go back to covering baseball. You you know, I, I, I can tell you, and I don't think I, I need to tell you, 
These guys don't want to be the story. No reporter wants to be the story. And uh, it's like the, the worst thing for you is to be the story because that's not, not what you're there to do. You, you need to sort of blend into the background and you need to be able to, you know, stick your microphone out and, and take notes and all of that stuff and just do your job. And, uh, you know, whatever the hell happened in the clubhouse, you know, but from all indications, Callaway and Vargas and whoever else made it more difficult. So uh, happy Sunday in Chicago. Happy flight to Philadelphia. Indeed. I, I caught that next booth on Twitter. Well done by you. I thought it was funny. Uh, Rich, the proverbial further discussions. I'm so intrigued. Is this amateurism on Mickey's part? And we spoke about this before the show. Now, does this open the door for Brody Van Wagenen to fire Mickey Calloway? You know, on professionalism, this, that, or the other. Uh, does it allow him to fire Mickey Calloway without, you know, having to trip over his own words and his own narrative? Uh, your observations on what went down, how, how, you know, why, and with who, or whatever. Go for it. Well, it's amateurism for sure. I mean, it's the highest degree of amateurism. And, you know, I, I know nothing, of course. I'm sitting here in my home reading this on Twitter. But I, I would imagine it could have gone down something like, you know, Mickey is, is frustrated having to answer that question about Diaz and, Diaz, the Diaz rules, you know, to use a term like the Java rules, are probably not his, but he's defending them and representing them, uh, that we can't use this guy, you know, for more than four outs. So um, maybe, you know, maybe he was finally sick of the question and, and, and a question was asked one more time. And he was like, look, I'm done, I'm done. And then somebody said, oh, you know, see you tomorrow, Mickey. And it was like, and that was what it took. You know, it, it, maybe there wasn't sarcasm behind that see you tomorrow, Mickey. Maybe there was. Who knows? You know, there could have been sarcasm in response to something Mickey said. We don't know. We weren't there. But it's incredible amateurism regardless because his job is to be professional. He's a very highly paid professional. And he cannot break down like that, you know, and and lose that professionalism publicly. Um, And then the whole Vargas thing is like, what in the hell is that? I mean, that's just a – I can't even – begin to think about that. I mean, yeah, defending your manager, sure, but you're a paid professional athlete. You're, you're paid, I think, I think Vargas is $9 million a year, and you're going to go after a, a guy with, a, with, an I, with an iPhone in his hand recording. I mean, are you serious? What, what is that about? So, but, but getting back to your question on Mickey, you know, it dep- if they wanted to get rid of Mickey but wanted to – you know, come off looking professional after the Miami series and, you know, giving him a chance and all that kind of stuff. This is the out. You know, you, like you said, Mike, you, you, you hit it. You hit it right on the head when you, when you talked about that, that if there's any part of the Mets that wants to get rid of Mickey at this point, and like, like we talked about earlier on, on 41 and 40, 40 and 40, whatever it was, managers get fired when reality doesn't match expectation. This reality is not matching an expectation. It would not be baseball shocking at all to have a manager fired in the situation. Not at all. When the, the organization set the bar up here and they're performing down there. That's what happens in baseball, happens in every sport. So now the question is you know, you made this statement earlier that he's your manager now and going forward. But if there's a growing sentiment in the organization that, look, as Greg said, we're four and a half games out of a wild card spot. Yes, we're you know behind everybody and their sister, but we're still four and a half games out of a wild card spot. 
we could salvage this thing. Yeah, I know we said he's our manager now and going forward, but maybe we could salvage this thing if we make a change in the manager's office, and this is the chance to do it without retracting that statement about he's our manager now and our manager going forward. You know, it could be, look, we simply cannot tolerate this behavior. Um, we're, we're saddened by this, but, you know, this organization is about professionalism, and because of that we decided to make a move. This gives them that open door. And now, what conversations are they having? I mean, is it going to be – I'll tell you what. You know, I'd like to get you guys to react to this. If what we hear tomorrow afternoon is another statement that says, we spoke to Mickey, we spoke to Vargas, they understand that, you know, that this is not professional conduct, they will meet with Tim Healy and shake his hand, and, and the organization looks to put this behind it. They will be trashed for that. Tell me if you disagree. But if it's something like that, they'll be basically like lip service, what are you doing? The other extreme is they make some moves. I don't know which way it's going to go, but I'll tell you what. Based on what on what happened, and based on the fact that this this team is is kind of dangling, you know, and needs somebody to pull it out of the dangling over the fire, maybe it's time to make a move. Maybe this gives them the opportunity. And one more thing I'll say is this: um, so you could talk about the incident and all of that, but if you notice the tweets after the game, Mickey says I left. Lugo in because his stuff was good. Lugo said, I had nothing. He said, I, I didn't have my good stuff today. So it kind of shows a disconnect on the field, even above and beyond the 800-pound gorilla that we're talking about. So I think tomorrow, So and I, if you guys don't mind commenting on this, I think tomorrow will be interesting, but I do think it's going to be a platitude. I think there will be a platitude coming out of the organization. Nothing will change, although I do think it would open the door. What do you guys think? Take it away, Brick. Well, you know, they Dan Wagon has to address it. He will be with the team in Philadelphia. Apparently he was with the team, had to leave early, so he missed the fun. Um, you know, the the idea that they would use this as a cudgel uh to separate Callaway from his job is interesting. I was thinking that I don't. Before I read that statement, which I only saw after after the show started, I was thinking, well, you know, he certainly he's he's flying through the road trip because I think that would be kind of an overreaction. And like, well, I don't think they want to overshadow the 1969 celebration next weekend. Then you've got the Subway Series. Maybe they just like let let it, you know let the chips fall between now and the All Star break. If you remember, the Cardinals got rid of Mike Matheny just before the All Star break last year and give everybody a chance to kind of uh, regain their bearings. But, you know, maybe, maybe this does, you know, accelerate the timetable. It was, it's interesting this weekend, you know, the, the teams chasing the Braves, going back to our, our, our theme of rivalries, uh, all had terrible weekends. And they're all managed by managers who had no experience before they were hired, all, all of them last year. Callaway and um, Gabe Kapler and Dave Martinez. And, you know, you, you could see a situation where, like, none of them are around <laughs> the second half gets deeper. Uh, certainly, you look at it two ways. The, the, the Mets are, in, in, are, are playing the exact right team in that there's somebody who's, like, kind of more of a mess than they are. 
or they, you know, picking the wrong team to play because they're bound to snap out of it. So, um, you know, this uh, this this could be a reason. Maybe the maybe there is less tolerance for this sort of thing from a corporate level. And you know, the Mets are, you know, they're they're a corporation, you know, whether in name or you know, in practice. And you know, again, this is not the guy maybe that they want putting the best face on the organization. But then, of course. You, know, you get into the usual stuff where the Mets are concerned, which is do the Mets want to pay Mickey Callaway for, I believe, a year and a half? I think he's under a three-year contract. They want to pay him not to manage. Do they want to pay another manager? You know, in addition to him, you know, do they just want to, you know, let it ride with, you know, Riggleman or, or, or somebody else they have in the minor leagues? Or, you know, is this the moment where maybe, a, not to be a, a conspiracy nut, but, uh, hey, maybe uh, Van Wagenen was on, on a plane to meet with Joe Girardi or, or somebody like that. Or maybe that's the sort of uh, you know, manager they would like to bring in, but they would you know, need to have kind of a run-up to it to be fair to the new manager to get the most out of it. So, you know, th- those are all questions we don't know the answers to. And they, you know, it's, it's not as probably with this ownership is not as simple as what we would prefer if, we, if indeed, you know, we'll leave Cowley out of it just in general. It's like, the team is in trouble under this manager. Fire the manager. And that, that sounds good, especially when you've got a manager who, let's face it, has not distinguished himself really in, in very many aspects of the game in his season and a half. But, you know, this is always the core of the problem. This is always what's frustrating when thinking about this team and writing about this team is that, you know, you can, you know, take apart – to, to take apart the, the nesting dolls, the, the Rubik's cube, whatever metaphor you want to use, at the at the center or, or in the in, in the last shell of the Wilpon, and they are impossible to figure out, or they are impossible to overcome, depending on how you look at it. And you know, you, you get a year like 2015, and you know, you you could take a benign view and say, yeah, there's nothing wrong with ownership. We won the pennant. You know, they let. Uh, they, they, they signed off on, on going out and getting Cespedes and, and then, you know, re-signing him. And every, everything was groovy. But uh, most of the time it's not like that. And I, I think that's, you know, the, the ultimate question. Whether who, and, and whoever it is in that front office, you know, or, or in that ownership suite, I should say, um, you know, who, who thought that Mickey Calloway was a fantastic hire, who, of course, you know, one of those people wasn't Brody Van Wagenen because he wasn't here. And then, of course, it'll eventually come down to whoever thought Bernie Van Wagner was a fantastic hire and how movable they are. Because, you know, um, you know, if Callaway goes, how many moves you got left? <laughs> You've got like, the amateur, you know, we, we talk about professionals and amateurism. Um, you got the amateur general manager. Uh, he's not being paid like an amateur, but he's new at it. <laughs> Never did it before, um, except by definition, as far as I'm concerned, he's an amateur. And the whole thing is one like an amateur hour, you know. If ever, maybe I'd be, I'd be talking differently if everything had worked out for the better in in Brody's dreams. I mean, you know, well, we got to have Robinson Cano, we got to have Wilson Ramos, and you know, all the other moves they made, and Jerry's Familia, and all of that. But um, the whole thing is a uh, God. I, I hate. I, I find myself using cliches I can't stand. <laughs> the whole thing's a dumpster fire right now. And this is all off a, off a one terrible eighth inning 
and a really bad post game. You know, I, I think if we were do, if we were doing this show at nine in the morning on Sunday instead of or eight in the morning instead of eight at night, we'd be talking about you know things are really looking up, guys. <laughs> One two in a row is in the Wando is tied strawberry and look how good Zach Wheeler was. We're gonna get back in this thing and uh, you know it doesn't take much to kind of tilt the equation with this team and you know I you know teams lose games every every day. Uh, our, our ecosystem is fragile, and you know that this is not. And I'm not even you know casting aspersions on us, you know, as Mets fans, for for looking at it this way. Because look, look what we've been dealing with here for you know in the, in the short term this year, the slightly longer term for for three years, and with a couple of exceptions for most of the past I don't know twenty years. So um, you know, I, I I don't want to you know lobby for anybody's dismissal. I I don't like that, but you know. This this is a straw that could break a uh, camel's back, or at least push the camel into the sand and uh, force uh, the guy uh, who's been riding the camel off of it. Although it was Dave Martinez who brought a camel into spring training to tell the, the Nationals they were going to get over the hump. So maybe I'm using the wrong metaphor, but uh, so be it. Rich, you know it's funny. I'm here shaking my head. Fred likes Mickey, and Jeff likes Brody. We'd all be remiss if we didn't bring Dave Island and Phil Regan into this because somehow it all it's all related. Uh, Dave Island gets fired. So my point with that is Brody issued Mickey a vote of confidence once. He issued him a vote of confidence twice. So by fire, firing Dave Island, is that strike two and a half? I don't know, because in baseball, it's strike three, you're out. And that's where I think we are. Again, we all know that Brody didn't hire Mickey. And me personally, I think that Brody uh, harbors an opinion, uh, you know, that Mickey's not up to snuff. I'll just leave it at that. So in order for Brody to continue forwarding his narrative, I think he's left with no choice but to fire Mickey. In lieu of that, I'd be very, very interested to see what concoction he comes up to get us believing, you know, that things are on the straight and narrow. Uh, Said another way, what a freaking mess. (laughs) So let's have... Let's have a little bit of fun and start winding this thing down. Uh, you guys want to bring up anything else before I, I, I take it somewhere else? Greg, Rich? I think, I think well, we've beaten this horse. <laughs> oh, all right. right. <laughs> so let's have a little I, I fun. Think a, no, go ahead, Rich. I think, a, I think a comment on Regan Island, you know, is important, though, because that, that – yeah. let's think about this. 72 hours ago, that was the news, Right. Um, it was Thursday. It was like, oh, wow, you know, uh, Dave Island's out. Didn't see that coming. 82-year-old man, okay. And doesn't it seem like that was light years ago? Or not that's a measure of distance, not time. But that doesn't, um, doesn't that seem like it was forever ago because of all the crap that's happened mostly today? Um, yeah. You almost forget that 72 hours ago the Mets made news for dismissing Island out of, seemingly out of the blue and replacing him with an 82-year-old guy, which, you know, hey, 
Regan said he saw something in Diaz's delivery. Diaz went out and looked better than he had in a very long time on Friday. Okay. Um, so, you know, but, but this, I think we have to factor that in to the circus that's been going on here is that just 72 hours ago, they fired their pitching coach right out from under their manager. And, um, and that has to be factored in too. Um, with all the change and with all the crap that's going on, this team needs some stability and it needs an injection of stability very quickly. And um, whether that comes from Mick, uh, from Brody coming out and saying, you know, we're at this, we're settling things down and apologies all around, or if it's if, if it's all yet another reason to clean house and just say that you know this organization is it's it's at the point now where stability is what's needed. And um, anyway, and remember, what, I think we all think about the Bobby Valentine thing in 1999 when basically his entire coaching staff was fired out from under him. And everybody was saying Bobby's next, but the team went on an amazing run, you know, to to get into the postseason. But I don't know. I, I just think a mention of that was warranted. Yeah. So, uh, Greg, Dave Island, scapegoat. Probably. I mean, I, you know, the pitching ha- was not up to uh, expectations. Uh, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that might have been Island's fault. Was Island also the pitching coach when Jacob DeGrom you know, elevated his game and won a Cy Young when Zach Wheeler uh, broke out and had a second half that was just every bit as good as DeGrom's when Noah Syndergaard came back from the injuries that were bugging him and, and threw two complete game victories, including a shutout in the last month when, you know, basically nobody does that anymore. Uh was it his fault that uh, all three of them have kind of taken a step back this year? But at the same time, Stephen Matz has, for the most part, found consistency. We've seen, except for today, and that he's no longer the pitching coach, so it's what ain't his fault. Uh, Seth Lugo is having uh, you know the, the best season of his career so far. Is, is does that have anything to do with Dave Island? Uh, was was is it all on him that Jerry Familia has been an utter disaster? That Edwin Diaz has has not been the guy we thought he was going to be, or at least not the guy that they, they thought they were getting. Uh, you know, I like Phil Regan. I was kind of disgusted when people just you know, went right to the fact that he's 82 and uh, made, made remarks based on that. I think, uh, you know, as as a potential future 82-year-old myself, maybe, maybe not right away, but uh, somewhere down the road, I, I would like to be, you know, to be thought of as having the ability to do whatever it is I'm doing then. And if I am trying to do it to, uh, you know, not, not be laughed at. So uh, Phil Regan, you know, I, I think we're all familiar after the last few days with his story that, yeah, he's been around a long time, but he also coached these guys in the minor leagues and is generally thought of very highly. But you are still making, you know, not, not just the pitching coach, the bullpen coach, and bringing in another guy. How much of this was ownership or the front office you know, wanting another eye on the manager or, you know, basically representing meddling. With this many coaches, there's no way that everybody is on the same page. And only in the last, I, I, I glimpsed it in our Mike Puma, who, uh, you know, we referenced before, talking in just in general terms about there's an incredible level of distrust among the staff, among the coaches, among the players. So, you know, there, there are more more 
layers of this onion to be peeled in the in the next day or so. And again, three days from now, it might also be like, oh yeah, wasn't that just three days ago that uh, Callaway had that uh, blow up with the reporter? Because like you said, you know, th- things happen with this team, and you know, it's just sort of a function of, of tabloid New York uh, that things are huge stories. You know, not even tabloid New York, Twitter New York, Twitter anywhere. Uh, things are the biggest deal in the world. And then, you know, they, they kind of become, you know, what, what last week's news in about a day. Uh, you know, again, I, you know, it's, it's, well, we, we, we led talking about Pete Alonzo and that home run. And, you know, when, when the, the game was in the uh, first inning today, I was thinking, you know, well, you know I, know, I know what I'll be writing about on Faith and Fear tonight. I'll get to write about this, this record. Like, like that, that's a footnote. <laughs> the whole season is turning into a footnote. So, uh, you know, if, if this is indeed, you know, a good faith, change bringing in Phil Regan because we don't necessarily know that Dave Island, you know, wasn't the worst in some way. And that Ricky bonus being the bullpen coach that Chuck Hernandez and Jeremy Accardo adding whatever it is that a pitching strategist to go with uh, Luis Rojas, the quality control coach. Uh, You know, all these euphemisms are amazing to me. Um, You know, well, well, let's hope that it was all made for great baseball reasons and that the players will respond. And you know we, we we can go back to to cheering for a team that somehow is over five hundred soon. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's just one one more element to the mess, and it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to take any given element of it at face value. It all it all feels like it, it's it's part of a larger, you know, to 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 invoke Oscar Madison's favorite dish. Part of a greater goop melange, which you know, you, you, unless you're Oscar, you're, you don't want to take a bite out of. And uh, unfortunately, that's uh, what, the, what the Mets are serving us up these days. Once again, the stems on the back pages for the wrong reasons. Gentlemen, let's have yeah, a little fun next week. <laughs> next week, uh, that, the Yankees. Mets are going <laughs> to. Next week, they're going to start celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary of the 1969 World Championship. Uh, I've been covering the season game by game on my blog. I'm having a lot of fun. I asked you guys to come up with a little tidbit on it. Uh, what I'd like to say, you know, it's funny that on May 21st, they reached 500, 18 and 18 on the season. And then they go on a five-game losing streak. And then they go on an 11-game winning streak. And that really sets them on their way. Uh, today, on June 23rd of 1969, the Mets were 36-28 in second place, five games back of the Chicago Cubs. A couple of things about a couple of players. Uh, I really feel badly for Don Cardwell. He was such a hard luck pitcher. And like I said, I'm only speaking through June 23rd. Uh, so many times he pitched so well and, and came up on the losing end. Uh, another gentleman I'd like to uh, make note of is Ed Cranepool. He got off to a very good start in April and through May. Uh, Cleon Jones uh, was just epic uh, through the first two and a half months of the season, uh, batting over 400, I think, through the majority of May, if I'm not mistaken. I, I probably am. But he definitely carried the team for the first two months and uh, entering June. Uh, Tug McGraw was only now starting to grow into his closer's role. And two of the most underspoken players on that team 
have to be Ken Boswell and Ron Taylor. Uh, all that being said, Greg, I'll hand it over to you, the 1969 Mets. One last thing I'll add is I'm just having a lot of fun watching the platoon situations unfold uh, with, with Gil Hodges at the helm and that, you know, Don Clendenin was acquired on June 15th, and he's yet to really impact the team. That comes later. So sorry to interrupt there, Greg. Take it away, please. No, you gave a a, a nice, uh, like as Walter Cronkite uh, used to say in his uh, his his weekly show, uh, and you are there. You made me. Uh, <laughs> you 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 brought us out of the morass of 2019, and, and give us hope here in June of 1969. Uh, the Clendenin trade is you know the big story of June of 69, and we we. Well, we, we know how everything unfolds, of course, but, uh, you know, that was such a historic move, not just because of how it worked out, but it was the thing. Think about what the Mets did in 2015 with Cespedes, and there's probably other examples, although it doesn't feel like there are. Um, a team, a Mets team on the cusp of trying to make a move. Well, they are trying to make a move on, on the cusp of that move, on the cusp of moving up. We got to go get somebody, and you know they they did it with Cespedes, they did it with Piazza in '98, and it made all the sense in the world. Picture yourself 50 years ago, a Mets fan who had never seen the Mets behave like a contender would at a trading deadline, which in those days was June 15th, and these aren't. I was going to say the. the these 1969 Mets aren't, we'll say these aren't your father's Mets because the Mets weren't around long enough. These weren't your, your older brother's Mets. You know, you're not just bringing in veterans kind of on a wish that maybe Ken Boyer has something left. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, Tommy Davis will, you know, have something left after all the injuries he's had, that sort of thing, which was how the Mets did business by the mid-60s. You know, you know go, going beyond the first couple of years, which, you know, we're, we're famous for their, let's bring in big names and hope that people will be happy to see them. And we know we're not going to be any good anyway, because we're a brand new team. So, you know, if, if you come out of 1968 where there's marked improvement and you start the season and after some ups and downs that you described, I mean, it, it was a hell of a move to get to 18 and 18 in the first place. Because the Mets had never been beyond four and four. <laughs> Think about that. They've never been above 500, at 500. They've never been more. One year, 1966, I believe, they were two and one, and that was it. That was the history of the Mets through 1968 of, of Met teams above 500. And four and four was the extent of them being 500, 1967. So for them to get to 18 and 18, that was amazing in itself. And there's a famous story where when they got to 18 and 18, and, you know, most of the, uh, talking about beat reporters, the beat reporters who had covered the Mets in 1969, many of whom had been around the Mets since the beginning, because the beginning was only seven years before, you know, as the legend goes, in Atlanta, they get to 18 and 18, and they storm the clubhouse, and they're looking to see the big celebration in the middle of May, and there's no celebration, because as Tom Seaver said, what are we going to celebrate? Being 500? Like, you know, come back when we win the pennant. 
And, you know, one of the reporters said, yeah, but my, my beard will be down to the floor by then or something like that. And, in fact, he didn't have a beard. That was the joke. And, you know, the Mets were the joke. <laughs> and, of course, they go out and they lose the next five. And they, you know, well, they shouldn't have been so uppity about <laughs> being 500 because now they're five games below. But, you know, you, you had that winning streak that, that kind of changed perceptions the first time, wouldn't be the last time in 69 of, you know, getting 11 games, excuse me, 11 games in a row, six games above. And that changed the equation. And, you know, that's why you're out there looking for Don Clendenin. And you've got so many young players fitting in to what Hodges is, is teaching and preaching and mixing and matching Cranepool and Clendenin, you know, about to be the next example of it. And, you know, you're the two guys you mentioned, uh, you know, one – one of the few real veterans on the team, Ron Taylor, who had World Series experience winning a ring with the 64 Cardinals and in a, in a role that is only really just coming into focus in 1969, that of the, the firemen. <laughs> they didn't call them closers back then. And, you know, the, the Taylor-McGraw combination was just kind of coming into focus. And Boswell, half of a second base platoon, guy who, you know, quietly did his job, would go on the next year to – no, he didn't have the greatest defensive reputation. He said uh, it would be bettered by others. But uh, 54 games in a row without an error in 1970. He set a nationally second-base record. So, you know, a lot of quiet, steady, situational hitting type of players. You know, Cleon Jones is the only guy putting up a batting average on that team. You, you look at some of the batting averages, and it's just, again, you know, it, it was um, – I think it was Billy Williams in the course of the season looked at the Met lineup before a game and said, you know, he, he saw you know, who was who was batting and I don't know the, the batting averages. I don't know where they were listed. Or he was just going on memory and said, boy, I know that the, the Dodgers a few years ago won with a light hitting team, but this is ridiculous. And, you know, as we under, as we understood on paper, it was, which is why, you know, we, we always use the word like miracle. And, and we use amazing without uh, without irony. So uh, it's, it's a team that's about to be carried by its pitching, but uh, starting pitching, the most famous aspect of the team. But uh, you know, bringing up Oswald and bringing up Taylor, good points because they're they're not there without a uh, a steady defense, a situational hitting, and you know, although the bullpen is used differently in those days, uh, you know, a, a reliable bullpen. And those those pieces were coming together in June of '69, and it's uh, you know it's it's funny, uh, Mike. The way I, I I haven't I've been kind of avoiding the siren song of this day 50 years ago. I've, I've been I mentioned before my my little obsession with uh, day by day records. You know the the Mets having played just 78 games to this point in real life in, in 2019. So I've you know I keep an eye on you know what the Mets were doing at 78 games or whatever whatever it is on a given day, and the Mets are, are just now, by now it's like about July, June 30th, July 1st in the 1969 schedule, and they're, they're just getting on another roll, you know, because they do have their ups and downs. And in real time, in, or in schedule time, shall I say, in 1969, game 78, they are just on the verge of that epic series at Shea Stadium against the Cubs, which, you know, I won't, won't dive into in case, you know, you, you want to revisit this when you get to July 8th, July 9th. But um, it's funny. We, we don't think of them as a streaky team, but they were a very streaky, for better or worse, well, anybody who's streaky, it's, it is for better or worse, 
And, you know, it, it, the, you know the, the high high points of the story are all, always include that 11-game winning streak because they beat the Giants and the Dodgers, teams that they were never able to beat, and because of the, the, the psychological uh, impact of that, given who the Giants and Dodgers were both as competitors and, you know, of course, you know, the, the Mets' origin story of, you know, where the Giants and Dodgers came from. But, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was not a, a merry rocket ride to October because they, you know, a lot, a lot of ups and downs throughout that you know, late spring and into summer, and uh, which will make what happens in late summer, you know, all the more remarkable. But uh, I, I can't get over every time I think about it. You know, I'll definitely be thinking about it at City Field next weekend. Uh, plan to be there uh, when, when they bring as many of those guys back as they can. Um, how everything must have felt. Yeah, you know, I, I came in sort of as, as it, it would be the whole thing was kind of had come together. But uh, as, as a six-year-old, but the, the, if you were there, you know, any time before 69 as a fan, and especially if you were there in 62, but even if you would just, you know, come along in 66, 67, 68, and to suddenly see this team that not only had never won anything, that nobody thought they were ever going to win anything, that I don't believe there was a lot of smart money on the Mets. There were no analytics in, in April of 1969 that said, look out for this team. The best you could say about them was, you know, they're improved and they have some good pitching and, boy, they have a terrible lineup. And uh, good luck to Gil Hodges because, uh, you know, they're in a tough division with the uh, National League champion Cardinals and the uh, the powerhouse Cubs and the Pirates who hit great. So, um, you know, the, the best you could say going in is, well, you know, with with the uh, the expansion expos and the the Phillies who seem to be falling apart, maybe the Mets won't finish last. And uh, you know, to, to to get to June and look at a second place team. So I'll, I'll close this segment, my my segment of this, uh, with this thought. I, I've always wondered because 1970 was such a disappointment, given what 1969 was. 1970, they won 83 games. They finished. Six games out, they finished one game behind the Cubs for second. You know, something that wasn't even settled until the, literally the last game of the year. They were in the race until the second to last weekend. Like you kind of, I, I've always been curious. You take 1970s results and flip them with 1969s. If that was the next step, from a 73-win ninth-place team to a third-place team that, that finished a few games over 500 for the first time, and then you had this wonderful 100-win season in 1970. You know that that would have that would have been probably almost as miraculous in people's minds since the Mets had never won anything. But if the Mets had just had an 83 and 79 season and finished, you know, a few games out, like people would have been doing cartwheels because the Mets had never done that. Instead, you know, expectations were raised and, you know, the, the Mets would forevermore be judged, at least in that era, against what they did in 69. Um, which, you know, just bringing his back to just, you can never underestimate how amazing every day of that season, once it got going in earnest, was. And uh, it's it's fantastic that uh, this 50th anniversary is bringing attention to it. And it's fantastic that people who don't remember any of it, who didn't even maybe didn't even grow up on the stories of it as much as we did. Because, you know, if, if you, you guys know, if you watched Met games in the 70s, until, really until 86, this was what was talked about constantly. 69, I, I, I guarantee you, 1969 came up in some form or fashion every telecast, every broadcast, 
you know, even if it was just a quick mention or whether it was because, you know, maybe, you know, there were still a few players left, but also it, it was just sort of a subtle reminder that, you know what, even, even here in the late seventies, things have gone completely the hell, the Mets once were good and they once pulled off miracles and, uh, you know, believe in us and who knows, maybe someday we'll have another world championship. And uh, I, I guess to a certain degree, Mets fans experience that as well. Today, you know, you still kind of well. It helps you have guys from 1986 in the booth, but uh, you know, you're, you're you're you know, when you don't have many championships to choose from and you have three hours to fill, uh, I, I guess sooner or later you're going to touch on these things. But uh, <laughs> it cast you know, it, it cast an enormous shadow over what the Mets would do for years to come. But it was a fun shadow. It's a, it was a warm shadow. Uh, it was a bright shadow if there is such a thing. And it's, it's, it's nice that it's been sort of reignited this year, that it's more than just something on paper where it just, you know, there's somebody said, hey, it's the 50th anniversary, how about that? And then we just, you know, go back to uh, dwelling on all that's wrong uh, with the present day. So uh, I uh, congratulate you for, for following it diligently, and uh, thank you for bringing it up here. You know, my, one of my favorite yearbooks of all time is the 79 yearbook because it was the 10th anniversary of the 69th season, and they had a couple of pages on it. So as what, an 11-year-old, you know, uh, I'm very appreciative to have seen at least a, a clutch of those guys that won the championship play for the team that I grew up watching, you know, 74 and beyond. Uh, Rich, they're going to dedicate 41 Steve away this weekend. Unfortunately, Nolan Ryan isn't going to be there for undisclosed reasons. So uh, what do you say about the Miracle Mets of 1969? Well, you know, obviously, I think we all look back at that. We weren't really following it closely then. We were, I think we were all too young for that. But as I think about it, you know, um, they won 100 games, right? And they came from nowhere to do it. And you think about what I'm trying to say is what can we learn from that team that maybe can be applied in current day? Because for me to opine on the 69 season, you know, obviously not having – experience it other than through statistics i look at look at the importance of a manager you know every tom siever he was on the other night obviously it was taped in 2012 and i was watching it, it as before for one of the games and siever said the most important thing in 1969 was gil hodges he said um he said they had pitching and they had as greg said timely hitting but he said the differentiating factor in the 1969 season that put them over the top and made them legitimate was gil hodges so what can the current team learn from that? You know, that, that's my reflection. I guess I, um, I, I'm taking a very non-extemporaneous view of this, you know, and, and thinking about today. And um, so, what can they learn from that? Well, you know, is Mickey Calloway Gil Hodges? I, I, I think we know that he's not. He doesn't bring that to the table. You know, and, and maybe they have to do that. Maybe they have to bring in a stronger manager, somebody who has that presence, you know. Here's Tom Seaver, a first ballot Hall of Famer until very recently, the, the, the highest percentage of Hall of Fame votes. And he's on my TV saying that, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't Jerry Kuzman. It wasn't Cleon Jones. It was Gil Hodges. Well, okay. Maybe we learned something from that. You know, and, and maybe the Mets have to start thinking about that. And And I guess the other thing I take from it is, they were they were spotty. You know, they were on a roller coaster ride in 1969. They went up and down. I think you know they they had a, a point in July where you know the whole thing where Gil Hodges 
allegedly took Cleon Jones out. Well, he did take him out of the game, but allegedly intentionally or, or whatever, you know, the, the stories have gotten muddled from he wasn't hustling to he went out there to see if he was hurt, whatever it was. They were on a roller coaster ride. They hit their stride, and, and basically not until about August. So does that give us some hope for this year that maybe you know this team that's on a roller coaster ride maybe could put something together? I guess it's possible. So my, in summary, the 69 Mets mean to me um, the importance of the manager's office, the importance of hanging around and, and waiting until you could possibly take off, and uh, and that's how I see it. Uh, that, that's and and the credibility that it gave the franchise. It sucked a lot of people in. Um, it sucked me in, you know, as a fan because I was way too young to be a baseball fan at that point. But everybody talked about the Mets for years. You know, that that championship into the early '70s and of course nationally pennant in '73. The Mets were the talk, and the Yankees were were yesterday's news. Mantle was gone, man. You know, they didn't have any more, and. Uh, and so the Mets were the talk of this area. And so that 69 World Championship and the 73 pennant kept the Mets relevant. Everybody's talking about the Mets, the blue and the orange. And how great would it be to go back to that now? How great would it be to not be a circus but actually be a franchise people are talking about for the right reason? So those are my reflections on 69. Oh, from your lips to Joan Kaysen's ears. Uh, gentlemen, are we prepared to do number 29? Or should I have to uh, read off some names? Uh, anything you want, man. Rich? Number 29. So, um, I don't know. Let's see. I have to pull up my little handy Google thing here. Uh, so, I didn't have that one right. ready. I'll, so maybe Greg... I'll take it with some more recent names. Uh, hashtag free Devin Mezzarocco. How about we start huh. with that one? Uh, Ike Davis. <laughs> You know, I was a believer when he hit those 31 home runs, I believe it was. I, what was that, desert fever? I don't know. What, what, what a ponderous story that turned out to. I enjoyed watching his father when he pitched to the Yankees. After that. Uh, some other names on here, uh, more familiar names. Steve Traxel, he has significance. Octavio Dotel, he has significance from 1999. Uh, Robert Person, he should be familiar to Mets fans. Jason Isringhausen. Frank Tanana, he's familiar to older Mets fans and older baseball fans in general. Dave Maganin, Frank Viola, Sweet Music, Tom Gorman. Here's a name, Kevin Coble. I promised myself I would never badmouth Kevin Coble ever again due to the state, the present state of the Mets bullpen. Uh, I didn't like him then, and I apologize, Kevin, for anything bad I've said about you over the years. Uh, some other names here, and I'll toss it over to you. Danny Frisella. Greg, by all means, you know, say something about Danny Frisella. And Hank Webb was one of those guys that in 1975, you know, for every Tom Seaver, I would get like seven Hank Webbs in in a pack of baseball cards. Anyway, Greg, take it away, number 29. Bob Murphy told me Hank Webb is going to be the next Nets great pitcher, and I always believe Bob Murphy. So even though I'm still waiting, I think Hank Webb's going to going to have an excellent year next year uh, when he comes up from Tidewater. Uh, Danny Frisella, who actually uh, had had more success in '34, I've noticed a, a few of these guys like Isringhausen actually switched numbers and uh, made their mark. But whatever. Um, Danny Frisella was the uh, the master of the forkball. Uh, Gave the Mets a real good one-two combination. We talked about Taylor and McGraw. Uh, Frisella and McGraw 
Sella sadly didn't pitch much in 69. I don't remember if it was because he was injured or because he had military duty, which was a thing in those days. But a couple of years later, uh, they were a, a dynamite uh, bullpen tandem, the screwball and the forkball. Um, Ike Davis, who you mentioned, who I uh, kind of forgot War 29 and, and until uh, I knew we were going to be talking about this. It's funny. He's sort of like one bookend at the end of this decade. With Pete Alonzo as the other, the, the first baseman we can't wait to have come up and, you know, really lift our spirits, lift our lineup. And Davis did it in, you know, much more on a much more human scale. Uh, certainly, you know, certainly not Alonzo numbers, as, as we've established. Nobody, literally no Met rookie position players had Alonzo numbers. But Davis is you know, one of those guys who, whose name is pops up in every graphic you've seen uh, because he's, I think, uh, the fourth most or is tied for third with Juan Swoboda, the most uh, rookies by a home run. And, yeah, the Desert Valley fever uh, kind of took the legs out from under him. I thought he had a great personality. Basically, I thought he was going to be what Pete Alonso has turned out to be, kind of this team leader, kind of the next step from David Wright, or at least, you know, a yang to his yin, whatever it would have been. Uh, really liked him. And I'm still kind of sad, uh, not, not from really a practical standpoint, although he would be only 32 this year. Uh, at, you know, he's still 32, still alive, for God's sake. But um, really did like I, I had somewhere uh, in my possession, I no longer wear it, a, a shirt that says, We Like Ike. And it was not, it was not for General Eisenhower. Um, you know, Tra- Traxel, I think, is the standout. 29 in Mets history. I think Mets fans had a... I wouldn't call it a love-hate relationship. I would call it a tolerate-can-stand relationship with Steve Traxel because he made such a lousy first impression. He had a, a handful of terrible starts when he signed as a free agent, came over in 2001, a team that was incredibly disappointing. And, you know, it was, it was enough of a mensch to go down to, to Norfolk. And uh, so on, on the heels of... Bobby Jones, having done the same thing a year earlier, what was referred to in the press as the Norfolk Miracle Cure. And for the most part, Traxel was cured. He became a very dependable starter, uh, not a lefty, but kind of reminds me of Stephen Matz in that way, that, you know, you, you, you look up and you think he's going to, you know, be knocked out, and suddenly it's the sixth inning and he's still in there. And I was actually at a, a complete game shutout that within a few minutes, I'm not exaggerating, it was like two hours and four minutes. It was like at the end of the 2001 season, after they were eliminated, clearly neither team, it was the Mets playing the Pirates, uh, you know, wanted to dawdle. But Steve Traxel was capable of throwing like a two-hour and four-minute game. So never let it be said that uh, he was completely uh, slothful, although most of the time he was. Um, a shout-out here. To 20-game winner Frank Viola, war number 29 in 1990, uh, war 26 his first partial season. Uh, Frank Viola again, number 29. Somebody once told me ball players consider bad luck, or at least some ball players do, and I can see it because everybody on this list who tried to persevere in 29, kind of you know maybe it's coincidence, but they all kind of came and went. Or, you know, had had their moments and then it kind of fell apart. And that was kind of Frank Viola's situation. Viola was a Cy Young winner in the American League. It was a huge deal that we got him. Doc Gooden was on the disabled list and out for the bounce in the 89 season. In those days, 
the Mets didn't just try to, to get by by calling up Walker Lockett. No uh, no offense to Walker Lockett and, and uh, you know, a cast of thousands. The Mets went out and got Frank Viola, which, you know, is the, you know, the moral equivalent of going out and getting Chris Sale because uh, Noah Syndergaard might be out for six weeks. Uh, and, you know, the Mets ain't doing that. So um, Viola had a, a wonderful start in his first full season and ended up with good numbers, but really, I, I again, I'll, I'll, I'll invoke an, an, an unpleasant uh, saying here. He kind of spit the bit in the, down the stretch that year. Uh, Mets finished a few games behind the Pirates, and you can kind of look at Viola's second half. Uh, and he, he got kind of uh, more ornery as uh, time went along, and his, his fortunes followed a similar trajectory in 91, and he was ready to, be, to get out of town. And it's a shame because, you know, I'm glad he came back into the organization for a long time. And I, I, I miss that Long Island accent. It, to this day, you know, my, my wife, who doesn't sit around listening to a lot of ball players talk, immediately recognizes Frank Viola's voice from, you know, almost 30 years ago now because it was such a distinctive accent. Uh, you know, he grew up not too many towns from where I did. So uh, it, it was kind of a nice story for a while. I'll, I'll throw in one, well, two more names here. Uh, before handing it back uh, to you guys. Um, one from way back and one fairly recent. The way back guy is Ken Singleton, who uh, you know mentioned the Viola trade. Singleton was part of the Viola trade of his day, which was, of course, the Rusty Staub trade. And, and I was thinking about him earlier today because um, Larry Foss, uh, one of the 1962 Mets, just passed away. And I was I was looking up some stuff about Larry Foss, who admittedly I only have a surface uh, recognition of because he pitched in five games as a Met in '62, and he came up or got his first game action like uh, less than two weeks before Ed Cranepool did. He he preceded Ed Cranepool onto the roster. Why am I bringing that up? Because it occurred to me very few players until until 1980 ever didn't play with Ed Cranepool, because Ed Cranepool obviously was always a Met, except for about, I want to say, six weeks, give or take, in the middle of the 1970 season, uh, Ed Cranepool was having a lousy hangover type of year, as were the 1970 Mets, as alluded to earlier. So, you know, the big move, that uh, the middle of that season, Gil Hodges, and uh, presumably in, in accordance with the front office, sent Ed Cranepool down to Tidewater, which, you know, was something Ed Cranepool resented a great deal because he was an established big leaguer at this point, but uh, Hodge just thought he needed to be sent a message and replacing him, the first guy to not be a teammate of Ed Cranepool since, you know, Larry Foss, basically, and then uh, was uh, Ken Singleton. And, you know, he was this promising, you know, the, the kind of outfielder we generally didn't have, except on, you know, Cleon Jones' and Tommy Agee's best days, and went on to have a fine, fine career with the Expos and the Orioles, and, you know, got to be heard for a long time on Yankee telecasts, very familiar voice and face, but he was a Met, local boy, uh, was going to make good, and, you know, you know, it's a trade that you would, you made because you wanted Rusty Staub and you threw in Mike Jorgensen and Tim Foley. We certainly discussed that on the show. But uh, he, he is a 29, uh, in fact, one of those old yearbooks. I remember, um, I don't think it was Nike, uh, or Nikon, excuse me. It was a camera manufacturer at pictures of, of Nets 
or, or illustrations to show how great they would look in photos, something like that. And there was a pitcher wearing number 41. It was obviously Seaver, and there was a player wearing 29. It was Ken Singleton. Unfortunately, Singleton was already traded by the time the yearbook came out. But, uh, you know, I think I, to my mind, that was how thought, highly thought of he was. Like this, Sort of like I Davis, like, hey, get ready, Mets fans. This guy is coming, and uh, it's going to be great. And then, you know, for it didn't last very long. Uh, the more recent event I wanted to throw in there, um, a guy who – you know, you, you you said earlier, Mike, uh, who do I blame? The guy we all blamed, or so it seemed, for two or three years was Eric Campbell. That every time Eric Campbell <laughs> showed up on the roster, except for like a honeymoon of about a week where he got a couple of hits and everybody was like, let's get Eric Campbell in there. Uh, for the most part, it was like, oh, my God, they're sending up Eric Campbell to pinch hit. They're starting Eric Campbell. Oh, my God, Eric Campbell is batting fifth behind John Mayberry. That was number 29, <laughs> you know, circa 2015, and – you know, he was a guy who, like, once in a great while would, would would get hot, and, boy, he's a really useful guy to have on the bench, and Eric Campbell's going to get a big hit for us. And, again, you get a year like 2015, things start going well. Every Everybody looks good, but, uh, you know, Eric Campbell, um, it seems like he, he missed his calling because he could have been a 2018 Met, too. And uh, the way things are going, uh, a definite shot to be, you know, a 2019 match. But um, I think, you know, he went to Japan, I think, for a while. He wound up back on the Marlins. Um, oh, I mentioned Japan. I should, I should throw in Masato Yoshi, um, who wore 29 before. As soon as he could switch into 21, the whole thing about bad luck, I think he believed in that. But he was, like, kind of initially sort of uh, our answer to Hideo Nomo. It was like, you know, the, the floodgates had opened to, to Japan. And Bobby Valentine was certainly a believer in, in what Japanese pitchers could do in the American game. And, you know, he, he lured Yoshi here. And, you know, ironically, uh, Nomo joined him on the Mets because Nomo's stock fell and the Dodgers couldn't wait to get rid of him. And Yoshi, whether in 29 or 21, for the most part, was, again, sort of like Traxel. <laughs> so kind of a dependable pitcher who drove you a little bit crazy, uh, had his ups and downs. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go down, although, you know, he was wearing 21 at the time, um, the opening game pitcher in two postseason series for the New York Mets uh, in, in 1999, both against Arizona and Atlanta, and uh, started the Grand Slam single game against Greg Maddox. So you could either say that spoke very well for Masato Yoshi, or it spoke kind of badly for, you know, how desperate the Mets were that uh, they countered Greg Maddox with Masato Yoshi. But, uh, you know, he, he was part of, like like Octavio Giselle, part, part of one of the great uh, and most intriguing teams in Mets history. So, uh, 29, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we, 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 we flitted through a lot of names here. I, it's always going to be Steve Traxel to me. And, uh, you know, the other guys kind of supporting players. Steve Traxel pitched the clinching game for, uh, you know, the division flag in 2006. Mm-hmm. I was at that game, and it was a lot of fun. And you know what? I'm grateful to him for that. Rich, number 29, I know you have a take on Mickey Lolich. <laughs> I, funny you should say that because I do. But before, um, <laughs> but before we do, uh, very quick personal story. I talked about earlier about the 69 Mets and the, the four-year run, making a lot of people Mets fans. Well, personal story on this one is Ken Singleton. Um, in 1971, as a, you know, a, a tot, I, was, I went to this, Met, to this sports dinner. I'll never forget this. Like, I was up way past my bedtime and all that stuff. And my uncle was running this dinner here in Connecticut. And all of a sudden, Ken Singleton comes walking in 
with a Mets helmet for me because I was like, you know, the little kid, you know, there's all these grown men. I was one little kid there. So they had asked the Mets for somebody to come for this charitable event. They sent Ken Singleton. And I assume what happened is in the parking lot, somebody gave me a helmet and said, give it to that little kid over there. And so if I wasn't on my way to being a Met fan, I was at that point. <laughs> and to this day, whenever I see Ken Singleton, I, I can't for- help thinking about that. Sat next to him for the entire dinner um, and had that Mets helmet. I don't know where it is now, but I had it forever, like on, on my dresser. Sorry, Ken Singleton's story real quick there. Um, Mickey Lolich, I mean, I, you know, the guy – the guy could have gone 30 and 0 for the Mets in 1976, and I still would have hated him. I, quite, I, I don't mean hate him as a human being, as, as a player, because he was traded for Rusty Staub. Rusty was my man. You know, Rusty um, to me was was everything that that I wanted in a ball player. And when the Mets traded him, nobody they got in return could have been good enough. So Mickey Lolich, and of course he was awful for the Mets that year. I think it was 8 and 16. Greg, you might know better, but I know I think he basically lost twice as many games as he won. And I guess he pitched some bats. Eight and thirteen, I believe. Eight and thirteen. Thank you. His peripherals were pretty good. His ERA wasn't bad. He, you know, he pitched some bad luck. But you, anybody who came here for Staub just wasn't going to do it for me. And I and I resent Mickey Lowich, Lowlich to this day for that. I know it wasn't his fault. Um, Dave Magadan, as far as I'm concerned, Magadan was one of my favorites. He was one of the reasons that Keith Hernandez was uh, made expendable, other than the fact Keith was getting a bit older. But Magadan was going to be the next Keith Hernandez, you know, a smooth fielder, maybe not Hernandez level, but smooth fielder around the bag at first, left-handed contact hitter, um, great, great hitter. So I, I really like Dave Magadan. And then um, the only other one on here that I want to comment on that you guys haven't is Alex Trevino. Um, yeah. Alex, Alex Trevino, although he was the Mets' starting catcher in, I believe, 1980 and 81, um, although he was the starter, he was the quintessential backup catcher, wasn't he? The guy was one of the best defensive catchers I've ever seen. Remember they used to talk about how his quick release, how quick his footwork was? He would come out of the crouch, and he would gun down base stealers. Didn't hit much. You know, maybe I, I don't have his numbers in front of me. But I would imagine career 230-ish hitter. But great, outstanding defensive catcher to a point where – you actually would watch the Mets, and when you see Trevino, you'd want to watch this man play defense. Um, so anyway, Trevino was just a good soldier kind of a guy, and so uh, those are the ones I wanted to mention. Can I, can I jump in on Trevino uh, for a Please. second? Uh wanted to point out, holds the record, 733 of bats, no home runs. Uh, there you go. The Mets record <laughs> by far. Uh, terrific defensive catcher. It was, it was a strange not, not in a bad way either, but just kind of a strange conglomeration of catching talent that the Mets had in those days. Because you had John Stearns, who was also, you know, the the starting catcher of record when he wasn't injured, and he he would run into injuries periodically. They would try to put one of them at third base for a while. Trevino actually played some second base. Stearns, I believe, played some left field. Uh, you also had Ron Hodges kind of floating around. Uh, on the subject of Met yearbooks, the back of the Met yearbook always included future star Luis Rosado, a catcher, and future star Butch Benton, a catcher. So when the Mets finally did deem to part with Alex Trevino, which in a way surprised me because they were always kind of they always seemed so proud of the fact that they had somebody who was you know as as good at something as he was without kind of 
being all that noticeable. Uh, of course, you know, it was in the George Foster deal, which, of course, was a steal, and George Foster was great as a Met, obviously. But um, Ben Trevino came back, not, not wearing number 29, uh, but number six, I believe, in 1990, which was so bizarre. I mean, it's always, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole. And I'll, I'll resist the temptation to go down there. But, you know, just like having Carlos Gomez or Jason Vargas suddenly come back after a decade, um, you know, Trevino came back when the Mets were desperate for catching help in 1990, where, you know, the year after Gary Carter, where really nobody grabbed the bull by the horns, and the, the only guy who did was Mackie Sasser, and he'd gotten hurt. So, uh, and he only lasted a few games when he went on his way, and he's, he is today. The, uh, the Spanish-language voice of the Houston Astros did, did the World Series for them, been there forever. So, um you know, good good for Alex Trevino, and uh, always uh, I always thought though that he would sort of you know morph into the the guy who was going to be here a long time. But uh, you know he was traded, and Stearns unfortunately got hurt, and uh, never really had his peak. So um, I don't know what what one more name uh, I, I feel should be mentioned uh, because he did one great thing during his time here as a Met, and that was Steve Beezer, uh, the Bees. Uh, as he was known, uh, was not didn't even last the entirety of his one season, 1997, which was a wonderful year, most in my mind probably the most underrated year in Mets history. I mean, one of those come out of nowhere years and and competed the whole year and they didn't go all the way or get to the playoffs. But I love that team. I, I think to a certain degree it's the reason I'm on the phone with you guys tonight because it just I'm still kind of like on that high from 1997 in a way. But anyway, Steve Beezer was one of those Bobby Valentine creations, one of these, you know, career minor leaguers who Valentine believed in for a while. And he was, I don't know if he was pinch running or he was in the lineup, but it was in the first Subway series, the final game, the Dave Malicki series, not that game, but, uh, they played a Wednesday afternoon game, scheduled that way, which, which seems surprising, at Yankee Stadium. And David Cohn had been working on a, a no-hitter uh, for about six innings, I think. And I think the no-hitter was broken up by then. But, but by, some, by some machination of Bobby Valentine, Steve Beezer was on third base. And the, game, the Mets were down by one run. And Steve Beezer teased the balk out of David Cohn. And he scored the tying run. And Yankee Stadium was stunned, and you know it didn't lead to a victory. Unfortunately, John Franco lost in extra innings. But uh, always will have have a warm spot in my heart for Steve Beezer of the 1997 Mets, uh, somebody on whom number 29 uh, looked very nice. Gentlemen, we've covered a lot. Congratulations and thank you. Uh, we're on 126 minutes, and I want to thank everybody out there listening. Thank you for sticking it out with us. Uh, we're going to move into our final word, but before we do, Greg, thank you so very much for your time this evening. Thank you for joining the show once again. Uh, author, proprietor of Faith and Flushing, Faith and Fear and Flushing, excuse me, dot com. And uh, without further ado, let's move to our final word. And uh, Rich, I'll start with you. Stability. Um, the Mets need some stability, and they have to address this situation definitively tomorrow. I don't know what it's going to be, but it has to stop, you know, between the pitching coach thing and this thing and everything. Th- this team needs to settle down. 
They need to inject some stability so they can, you know, what, what a novel idea, start focusing on the job on the field and winning some ball games and stop being a damn circus. So stability is my word. Greg, uh, before you get to your final word, please inform everybody out there listening some of the work that you've accomplished, some of your books, uh, and, and what you've been up to lately. And then uh, you can segue into your final word, please. Oh, well, thank you uh, for having me on. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to mention uh, uh, my books, uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing, An Intense Personal History of the New York Mets, The Happiest Recap, uh, First Base, 1962-1973, uh, Amazing Again, a story of the 2015 Mets winning the National League Championship, and Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, kind of a look back on the Piazza year and what it meant to us as fans. Uh Pleasure having uh, written all those books. Hope hope to have others to talk about soon, uh, but those are all out there. And, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, the blog I do with my friend Jason Fry, com, where I will probably not be focusing on Pete Alonzo, <laughs> unfortunately, in tomorrow's column. Um, you know, the best laid plans and all of that. Um, I will just throw out one, the one in my word, squirrel. Guy we haven't talked about at all, except maybe in briefest passing, Jeff McNeil. Anything about a la Cleon Jones in the 340 range, playing maybe maybe it is not in line with stability, but uh, he has played four different positions this year as a starting player, has acquitted himself well with all of them, uh, works a bat like nobody's business, hits the other way, hits with two strikes, Hits them where they ain't. The shift is useless against him. Uh, I don't know in the uh, the way that they put all-star teams together uh, these days if what he he is doing has caught enough people's attention. You know, we're past the fan voting uh, where he would have been eligible. He got like I think finished twentieth among listed among outfielders. I, I certainly hope whether it's you know through player voting or. Uh, I, I guess it would be up to um, Dave Roberts, the manager of the Dodgers, and whoever he consults with. Uh, not, not, not that uh, I, I would expect uh, <laughs> by saying it out loud here, but just in, in general, please put Jeff McNeil as well as Pete Alonso on the National League All-Star team. Uh, this, this is one of those things that uh, brings out the kid in me every year. I, I realize that the All-Star game is meaningless, especially in the, you know, now, now that we're beyond the uh, the World Series home field advantage, which was dopey to begin with. But I've always always loved the idea of the All-Star game. I always get uh, worked up over who is going to represent our team. Some years we, we have a lot of players to choose from. This year we have two players, basically. And I hope they both make it. they got to take one of them. You, you can be pretty damn sure they're going to take the guy who's hit 27 home runs and counting. Who, by the way, just as a quick aside, I've already seen the back pages of tomorrow's post and news tweeted. Uh, they both feature Mickey Calloway in, in various shades of distress. There is not a word about Pete Alonso's 27th record-setting home run, which just goes to show you uh, how, how these things go. But uh, Squirrel, nickname for our friend Jeff McNeil, uh, let, let's get a, a squirrel, get him a nut in the All-Star game in Cleveland uh, next month. It would be uh, great to see. And then, you know, once he's introduced and once I have my, uh, my, my inner 
seven-year-old gets a thrill out of applauding him, I'll you know go back to changing the channel probably. But uh, he's having a great season, and if uh, hardly anybody else is. Well said, sir. My my word is adversity. Adversity is banging at the Mets' door. The question is, how will they answer? I'll just leave it at that. Once again, Mr. Greg Prince, thank you again very kindly for your time. Rich, likewise, thank you, my friend, for your time and discussion this evening. And thank you for everyone out there taking time out of your weekend to listen to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and myself, Mike. Uh, Rich, take us home the only way we know how. Well, let's do the thing that, that the Mets do when, when they're not talking about clubhouse issues. Let's go, Mets. <laughs> let's go, Mets, and good luck, right? Yep. Good luck is right. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Good night.